strong medicine from the Lord in our gospel reading today. So brace yourselves for we preach the whole counsel of God. Amen. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to start off with a question. Have you ever had a conversation with someone who says that they have never sinned? Never sinned. I've had those types of conversations, believe it or not. There are people out there who will keep a straight face, look you square in the eye, and tell you that they have never committed any unjustifiable act toward their fellow human being, or animal, for that matter, their whole life through. Now, if you meet such a person, keep an attentive ear listening for some serious verbal contortions. This kind of person can get very creative with his definitions of what exactly constitutes wrongdoing. It's kind of like that guy in the Gospels, perhaps you recall, who comes up to Jesus and he says, he's all eager to know, good teacher, he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Remember that guy? The rich young ruler, as he is sometimes described. He shows up uh, later on in Matthew chapter 19. We'll be getting to that down the road. But in reply to his question, Jesus rattles off a few of the big 10. You know, the commandments that Moses affirms, the Lord delivered unto me on two tables of stone written with the finger of God. Well, that finger of God happens to be one and the same finger of Jesus' own finger. So it turns out this young man approaching Jesus is at quite the disadvantage, Jesus having written the law. Nevertheless, we have to give this seeker some credit, don't we, for asking a pretty good question. So, like I said, Jesus tells this tells young ruler, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery. And the young man gives Jesus that straight face that I was talking about, not having a clue that he's actually staring straight-faced into the very face of God, the same God who, according to the scriptures, searches all minds and understands every motive of one's thoughts. That's from Chronicles. And as the Lord revealed to Jeremiah, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. Plenty of other scriptures as well testify to the fact that we cannot hide anything from the all-knowing Almighty. So we best not even try. But this rich young ruler gave it a bit his best shot, didn't he? Referring back to the commandments now, he replies to Jesus, well, all these I have kept since my youth. What do I still lack? Remember what Jesus then said to him? Jesus tells this young man, go and sell your possessions and give them all to the poor. You shall, then you can come and follow me and your treasure will be in heaven above. Jesus put his finger, that same finger with which he wrote, you shall have no other gods before me. I uh, wrote that on stone. That finger Jesus puts on the idol of this young man's heart. The man had made an idol of all his possessions, his wealth, his riches. That day, this young man left Jesus sad, and it says, because he had great possessions. Well, Jesus had already searched and examined this man's heart and found it wanting in terms of true zeal, and his heart of this young man fell short of true obedience to God's commands, because true obedience is done willingly, it's done joyously, it's done from the heart. 
But who can truly even know one's own heart when Jeremiah, by the Holy Spirit, calls the human heart deceitfully wicked? Who can know it? This is why we have already, in our worship time this morning, confessed our sins in thought, word, and deed. None of them escape the Lord. Even those of which we are not fully aware, we confess. We confess to God, and we confess to one another. No one is pulling the wool over anybody's eyes here this morning. We're all sinners saved by grace. But confession is good for the soul, isn't it? Especially when it's followed up with those refreshing, renewing words of absolution. You are forgiven in Jesus' name. Music to the sinner's ears. Forgiveness. That's where Jesus wants to go with all of this. Forgiveness. He's leading us to the baptismal font where all our sins are washed away, forgiven. He's leading us to the altar where he freely gives us his body and blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of all your sins. And he's inviting us to confess our sins so he can pronounce yet again to repeat offenders that you are forgiven in him, in Christ. And as Luther liked to put it, where there is forgiveness of sins, there is also life and salvation. I think an appropriate phrase for this epiphany season as it winds down, or rather I should say as it culminates with a brilliant light of transfiguration next week, there's an apt saying, post tenebras lux. That's Latin for after darkness, light. And it's also how the Latin Vulgate translates Job 17.12, which in the NIV reads, in the face of the darkness, light is near. Can you hear the hope that's in that verse? Job really needed that light in the end, didn't he? Through all the dark days he went through. Light is near, but first, the darkness. That phrase also becomes the motto, the motto for the Calvinist movement at the time of the Reformation in Geneva, post tenebras lux. I think that phrase as well nicely captures where we left off in the Sermon on the Mount, because today it just gets dark in this portion of our gospel reading this morning. Indeed, one might rightfully ask, where is the gospel? Uh, that is the good news in our gospel reading today. Like I said, it's dark. Anger, lust, divorce, oaths. In other words, as Jesus defines these things in this section, the AKAs are murder, adultery, adultery, perjury. Jesus went from the sweet, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, in the first part of his Sermon on the Mount, the beautiful Beatitudes, he goes from there to today's portion, which is saying essentially, if you think you are pure in heart, like that rich young ruler who gave himself way too much credit did, then think again. Jesus is here saying, I'll tell you what the law is really getting at, and it's original intention. Remember, I wrote the law. Furthermore, I know of your rationalization games that you like to play and your attempts at self-justification. But while you honor God with your lips, your hearts are far from me. Jesus begins to go through the commandments to set people straight. 
We need to be set straight. Anger is first stop. Jesus told them that it's not just about external ways of keeping the law. Don't you know we are all family? Uh, Jesus explains, as I paraphrase it loosely, you are here on this earth to live in love and in harmony with one another, not to divide, not to isolate those for whom you care nothing. God himself does not show partiality toward anyone, but desires that we all genuinely love one another from the heart as he loves us. And when you deride, write off, cancel your brother or your sister, you are cutting them off from life together. As Jesus says, I intend for everybody. You are in effect closing them off and in your heart killing them off. And as you harbor hatred in your heart, do you have the gall to believe I am pleased with whatever gift you bring to the altar? How can you say you love God whom you cannot see when you do not love your brother or sister whom you can see? That's the wording John gives in his epistle. Okay, that's anger. Lust. Back in the 1950s, Dean Martin, that uh, prized theologian, he used to croon, standing on the corner watching all the girls go by. Remember that one? Probably sounded more innocent back then in the 50s, but somehow here in 2023, it now comes off sounding pretty creepy, doesn't it? Mind you, men still engage in this same practice, and today women too, but I guess to a lesser extent. But the self-justifying line later on in Dean Martin's song goes, brother, you can't go to jail for what you're thinking or for, what, or for that wooed look in your eye. Well, yeah, you may not go to jail, but according to Jesus, you can sure go to hell for it. In verse 29 of our gospel reading, that's what it's talking about, Jesus' word. Jesus here gets graphic and starts talking about maiming yourself to avoid the fiery torments of hell. The problem is, of course, that if we were to really continue going after all the parts of our body involved with this kind of sin, we would have to amputate our brain and finally get a complete heart transplant because that's where we have already committed adultery, in our heart. Divorce. Divorce in biblical times was quite easy. If you were a man, you just needed a piece of paper called a git, G-I-T, a git, which you served on your wife, and then in the presence of three rabbis, you uttered, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. You're done. As if heaven was the county courthouse that would thank you for getting all your paperwork in on time and in the proper order, and then thank you again for following the law code to the letter. But Jesus says divorce only leads to adultery. And you have again strained at the spirit of the law while swallowing the letter. When it came to oaths now, those lacking in integrity, whose word was worth very little on its own, they found themselves in need of appealing to a higher authority to gain back whatever degree of credibility they lost and could perhaps now muster. The historian Josephus wrote concerning this first century time period that one could always trust an Essene's word, an Essene's word, more than any oath. An Essene was a 
desert sect of religious people to which some believe John the Baptist actually belonged. They kept their word instead of spinning their words like we see so much of today for dishonest gain. Some of the oaths appealed to things that were not considered prestigious enough to warrant those oaths being binding at all. So opportunists would escape their obligations in that way. You know, I just swore on this hill, not much of a hill, so I don't need to keep my word. But Jesus reminds them that God, in fact, made everything. Anything that you might try to swear by, God made. Therefore, do not swear at all, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than that stems from your evil hearts. And that gets back to the real problem again. Deep down in the dark recesses of our innermost being, men are not basically good. So by raising the bar in a Sermon on the Mount, so to speak, of uh, raising it to God's original standard of law-keeping, and the spirit of the law, Jesus allows us to see our spiritual poverty because we can't go that high with it. And hopefully that causes us to cry out for the riches of his grace. But first, the darkness. Mankind is not a bed of sweet-scented flowers just waiting to blossom under the proper care. Rather, we want it all. We, in effect, want to be God ourselves. We want to kill God, which historically we did accomplish in the flesh. That is, Jesus is God in the flesh, and evil men were acting consistently with their flesh, that is, their sinful nature, when they crucified the Lord of life. We today are born with that same sinful nature. That is the darkness. But then, the light, post-tenebras lux. All this was according to God's plan when we shed the light of Scripture on it all. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. And here we can hearken back to all those blessings at the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus front-loaded us with all those blessings framed in such a beautiful light so we take those enlightening truths with us through the valley of the shadow of death. What enlightening truths. Namely, the saving truth that Jesus declared in Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And he does. Jesus fulfills for us all the laws of God that are required of us men and women. Jesus fulfilled them all, and he did it from the heart. Where we get angry, Jesus loved unconditionally, patiently. Where we lust and commit adultery, Jesus had compassion on even prostitutes and foreign women with never so much as a trace of an impure thought, ever. Where we, the church, sadly divorce at the same rate as the secular culture at large, Jesus is the faithful bridegroom who lays down his life for his bride the church. And where our promises crack and crumble, his word is faithful and true always. His word is the bedrock of our salvation. His promises, all Jesus' promises are yea and amen. Amen to that. 
For us sinners, he dies in our place, taking on the punishment you and I deserve. And instead of abolishing us, which he could have done very easily, being God incarnate, instead he dies and he is buried. So we can take our seat with him in the heavenly places in the power of his resurrection and in his exaltation. He rains down upon us now, blessing after blessing, grace after grace, through baptismal waters. There, too, at the font, we unite with his death and his resurrection. The Holy Spirit there also creates in us a clean heart and renews a right spirit within us. Surely, he has restored the joy of our salvation, and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. And now may he who began a good work in you bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Amen.